Hello guys, my name is Lauren Callis and you're listening to the Get Rooted Podcast. On this podcast, we talk about self-awareness, psychology, spirituality, personal growth, and pretty much anything and everything that helps us become our best so we can bring our best to the world at large. But with that being said, Rooted is more than just something to pass the time online. We're a community of like minds looking to grow and support one another and take our community out into the real world. So if you're looking for a place to have these conversations, grow and be supported in that growth, come check us out on all the socials, join the conversation and find your tribe. But before we get started, I would like to take a quick moment and ask you guys to like, subscribe, leave a five-star review, comment, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your friend's family, um, pretty much anything that you can do to support the podcast and get the word out. I'd really appreciate it, and eternal gratitude will be yours forever. (laughs) And also, as a reminder, I'm looking to bring guests onto the show. So if you know somebody or you are somebody who would be a good fit to talk to about these sort of things, uh, email me at getrootedpodcast at gmail.com. So today I want to talk about shadow work. And if you're not familiar with what that is, Shadow work is the process of awakening to the unconscious parts of ourselves that we repress, reject, or deny. And I believe that it's in facing that darkness within ourselves that we can make peace with our imperfectness and have a healthier, more balanced, whole self. And as you can imagine, shadow work by its very definition is tricky territory because it's unconscious. Why is it unconscious? And how do we work on something that's unconscious? So let's tackle that former question first. Our minds, our egos are these tricky, sneaky, darling things. You know, its whole purpose is to keep us alive by getting needs met. And those aren't just biological needs, those are psychological needs too. And in that is our self-concept, like our identity. And our ego deploys these strategies to preserve itself. And sometimes these strategies turn out to be maladaptive. And often it's all we know. And it's often all we know because we develop these strategies before we're old enough to have the self-awareness to question it or to know any better. And how that basically happens is as we're learning how the world works and how we're supposed to go through it, we may encounter something that causes us pain, physical pain, emotional pain, whatever. And we start to adapt who we are around the avoidance of that pain or to find a new way to get that need met. And it's basically how we learn to stay safe and secure, in some cases, in some extreme cases, alive. And when we're young and vulnerable and impressionable, we can end up soaking in all these limiting beliefs, unhealthy coping strategies, up into the scaffolding that makes up our mind and our worldview. So we have these strategies, and sometimes they're unhealthy. 
And I want to pause here for a moment to remind you that if you find out that you're human and you have some of these strategies, um, it isn't a reason to feel shame or judge yourself or criticize yourself for deploying these because typically at the time we're doing the best we can and we don't know we can do better until we know what we're doing and that gives us the opportunity to do better so spoiler alert you're human don't need to be hard on yourself if you realize oh I've done this thing that I really don't like now you know and now you can move on from it anyways so we have these um, these strategies that we employ and what our mind comes up with is that defense techniques to protect ourselves and those strategies because if there's something that's working for us even if it's unhealthy it's working and that's what our mind cares about because again the goal of our mind is to stay alive and second to that is efficiency in all actuality thinking with conscious intentional awareness is a resource heavy process it takes calories to think so the brain and the whole body tries to maximize these efficiencies wherever it can and if it creates a process that works and it meets the needs and it's familiar and it's been ran a thousands of times and knows the results, the likely results at least, uh, we're going to rely on it. It makes sense. You know, in kind of taking it away from a, a strategy kind of mindset, but kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about in a very simplistic sense. You learned what a tree was and you learned about all the different things that trees summarize in your understanding of them and so if someone was to come by and be like hey you know what that's not a tree your brain's gonna be like no I'm not gonna even kind of question that because this information and this system of understanding that trees have trunks and branches and leaves and they grow in the ground like that all serves me so I don't need to question it and we do this with other things beyond just knowledge base. It's, well, if, if I'm sulky around my partner, my partner is going to attend to me because I'm signaling to them that something's wrong. And we may use that unconsciously to get attention instead of being like direct and saying, hey, partner, love me, give me attention. Because we've had the strategy work for us in the past. Anyways, again, our goal is to make sense of the world and when we have these strategies that work our brain is not going to mess with them we have a ton of ways that we do this to protect our strategies and ourselves I'm not going to list all of them but I will run through the top five ways that we create these defense mechanisms around the strategies and ourselves See if you can see how you've done these in your life. If you can't, then it's also usually pretty easy to see our perception of somebody else doing them. So the first one is denial. And that is the process of refusing to recognize or acknowledge real facts or experiences which would lead to anxiety. A perfect classic example of this is the idea of like, what's wrong? 
Oh, I'm fine. Well, Billy, clearly you're not. And sometimes this is something that's done consciously as a way to avoid facing communicating around the problem. Other times it's unconscious because facing the truth of that problem would either be pain too painful or by alternatively denying that there's a problem, th there is more benefit gained. So another example of this could be if I admit that I eat a whole package of Oreos in one sitting, that it's bad for my health and my waistline, that means I have to give up my source of comfort, face the facts that I'm making the bad choice, and now not have my coping mechanism to soothe my pain. So in all actuality, Oreos aren't that bad for me. And in fact, they're vegan, so that must mean they're healthy, right? Uh, um. So the next one is repression. And as the name suggests, it is blocking difficult thoughts from entering our consciousness. And it's not even entertaining the thought. So with denial, there's kind of the shiftiness. And with repression, it's straight gone. You know, this can come out as like memory loss or blurriness or confusion around something. And it's most common or easiestly illustrated in um, trauma survivors. You know, it's so far pushed down that all the ways that kind of are attempted to reach it are met with complete gaps in understanding. Next one is regression, and that is reverting to the behaviors or emotions of a younger age. And I believe that's kind of one of those ways for our brain to simplify things, but I also think that it shows up when we are triggered, because often if we're experiencing some sort of triggering event, it's because there is a previous event that our brain is recalling and that event obviously happened in the past so it takes us back to that age and environment obviously plays a huge role in this there's a quote by Ram Dass that I really like and he kind of joked saying something like if you think you've hit the peak of your enlightenment just go home and spend a week with your family and it's funny because our family knows how to trigger us in just the right way where we can feel like we're so young again compared to the amount of maturity and growth and healing and all the work that we've done. We just have some people in our life that can just take us back to how we would feel when we were hurt at 16 or 8 or whatever it is. The next one is a rationalization and intellectualization. Easy word to say. Um, both of which are shortcutting the emotional side to things. And rationalization is more about justifying with logic. Kind of reasoning things away. Or intellectualizing, which is um, focusing on the intellectual side. And my definition also would include 
taking things to the abstract and thinking about it as an intellectual exercise because there's an emotional detachment in that too. And when I saw intellectualization on the list, I came to realize that I still do that one a lot because, and it's so, it's such a default for me to just be like, let's make this abstract or let's talk about this from an intellectual standpoint and remove the emotions from the situation and that makes it less scary because I'm approaching it from this place of uh, detachment. But it's also a protection technique because if there's uncomfortable feelings, we should also learn to be okay with feeling the uncomfortable feelings and sitting with all that as well. But I thought that was kind of funny because I'm way guilty of that. Um, and the last one, and I think this one's a pretty big one, is the place displacement or projection. And displacement is the process of redirecting uncomfortable thoughts or feelings onto another person or thing. Um, again, we see this one in trauma. If at some point someone's hurt us in the past and we weren't able to process that experience, we may either project that role of perpetrator onto others, expecting them to hurt us in the same way, or we may displace our pain of that ex previous experience onto someone else. It's a way for us to make sense of it, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why people who have been abused are also most likely to become abusers. Um, there, like I said, there are plenty more of these, but I think you kind of get the idea. Um, all these strategies are deployed to either protect our sense of self or protect us from pain from others or truth, truths that we may not be able to handle yet. And as you can imagine, these often come into play in our relationships because if we are living in a bubble completely on our own, we don't have to deal with anyone else's projections or anyone else's uh, perceptions and we could be perfectly fine living in our own reality but the fact that we end up engaging with other people and particularly in long-term relationships it's inevitable that each party is going to splash their wounds onto the other person and this is why I kind of think relationships can be such a catalyst for growth and change because we're constantly being faced with what triggers us, especially in long-term relationships. Why is that? Well, I've often heard this expression that relationships are an invitation to heal the wounded parts of ourselves. And that's because when we often have this strong reaction to someone else, it's often because there is something unresolved. Something that we're not ready to deal with. Something that we haven't dealt with yet. And like I said, this is particularly obvious in long-term romantic relationships because there's all this time and energy connecting and sharing yourself with somebody else. That it's inevitable that the attempt to create a shared reality is going to have these meshings of projections and perceptions and unhealed parts bumping up against each other. 
And that's why relationships are so hard to navigate. I know in my own experience, like I, I always try to strive for the light. Like, and when I would get feedback in relationships, like I would convert that into being perfectionistic or self-abandoning and over-identifying with the other person's experience. And I would use these self-help books to better myself. And now kind of looking through some of those motivating factors, it was pretty clear to me now that some of that had been motivated in part by this unconscious belief that I either wasn't good enough or that I didn't matter. And by me constantly trying to strive towards this light, the light side of things, um, what I was actually kind of doing was avoiding my humanness and trying to live like a saint and spiritual bypass everything. By doing that, I got to play the role of victim because I was always trying to do my best and be good and anyone who um, would hurt me would obviously be the villain in that situation. Or, alternatively, because I was trying to be the light all the time, I got to be the hero. But I didn't have to worry about the third side of that triangle, which is villain. Or, you know, the dark side, at least. So, in the process of turning and uncovering my shadow and sitting with all the ways that I did things to secure love, approval, acceptance. Um, I'm not going to lie, it was uncomfortable. And it took some time to kind of process how and why those strategies, you know, were things that I felt I needed to deploy. And sitting with that and really facing off with all these parts of myself and taking the time to look at these parts that I rejected or avoided or shamed myself for and instead turning and holding these parts of myself with love and compassion what actually started happening for me at least was the softening and that is why I think shadow work is so important because we get to hold that tender side of us and we get to give ourselves the love, the acceptance, the approval, the reassurance that we're basically trying to get in the world outside of us. So what are some ways that we can start digging into our own shadow? One of the best ways, most simple ways is to just get curious and it's really easy to start this process in moments where you find yourself being triggered by someone else. You know, often, like I said, sometimes these triggers are trying to tell us, hey, there's something unresolved. And in those instances, it's, it's a previous wound that we have that we're misplacing onto somebody else's actions. And Sometimes it's in a, from a previous wound and we're seeing the behavior react or enact itself again in someone else and our body's trying to say, hey, this is something we're not supposed, we shouldn't be a part of. And 
the point about that is to, whatever the context is, is to step back and get curious in those moments about seeing what sort of insight they can provide and stay present with that discomfort and then do the exploration that comes with trying to uncover what is fueling the intense emotional reaction to whatever situation it is. And if you're able to sit with it, you'll, you'll get the insight from it. And it may take more time than you want it to. But if you choose to instead avoid it or turn it into some sort of blame or projection, then you miss the opportunity to learn from it. You know, in another way, kind of on that same vein that I saw recently in one of Jordan Peterson's videos is he suggests that you start to watch yourself like a stranger for a couple of weeks. Detach and just see how the person that is you goes about their day-to-day and in their life. And he advises to be a little skeptical of yourself and your motivations and get curious. And through that process, you'll start to see the mask of the person you're shaped to be. And it'll slip a little bit. And when you start to see that space between the mask we put on and the authentic self, then you get the invitation to go deeper into a new level of knowing yourself and what is your true authenticity and who you want to be. And then from there, we get to be radically honest with ourselves. We get to start making peace with the monsters. (laughs) And all the scary scaries that we think are lurking in the shadows of our mind, in the shadows of our psyche, you know, and we get to see the strength that we have and we get to see our weaknesses and our fierceness and our power and our shame. And we often will find, or at least in my experience, my experience was finding how Some of the traits that I loved about myself also had a shadow side to them. And so having this new understanding of the good I bring also comes with this tail end of not so good was a balanced perspective. And in in knowing that I've dueled with these scary sides of me or this uncomfortable part of me, um, what was once the scary monster to me now is an inner strength that I know how to mobilize that side of me in a way that now can keep me safe, keep me protected, and to have a- awareness around how this side serves me and how I can use it more consciously and from that though instead of coming out of it with like this harshness like I said there's a softening and it extends out to other people with this kind of and so am I attitude 
you know, something that would have felt threatening or triggering before doesn't seem to affect me as much anymore. You know, if someone does something self-destructive, motivated by fear, yeah, I've done that. Someone's abandoned themselves to obtain love, done that too. Someone judges and criticizes from a place of righteous, absolutely I've done that. And because I would judge myself harshly before for doing those sort of things, hence all the personal growth, um, I'd feel shame and insecurity and that sense of unworthiness always kind of lurking in the background. But in realizing what I was afraid of in myself was this actually this small, scared, wounded inner child that's driving those behaviors. All of that melted into compassion, kindness, gentleness. And how could it not? And so now seeing other people exhibiting those behaviors, because I've bridged that gap within myself, And, and in knowing that I had to go through that journey myself, I think that kind of also shifted my perspective on wanting to, it's going to sound weird to say it this way, but in wanting to ease other people's pain, I realized now in going through it myself that trying to do that robs somebody else of their experience of reaching that fullness because they're not having to go through the, that journey, that experience. And that's, that's why I think doing the ego work is so important and why doing shadow work particularly can have some of the highest impact because the rewards and the ability to see yeah, I've done that too, and I know that I'm an okay person, and I know that I'm doing my best, and I know that at the root of everything, you know, there was just this hurting part of me. Could you imagine if we all could just hop off our high horse in those moments and just get down and, like, hug each other and recognize that... We're all coming at this from this place of pain that we're trying to avoid. Or this desire to be loved. And I think there's a different energy when we are trying to obtain something versus when we're giving freely. And I think true love true connection is when we're giving it freely authentically and being able to be honest with one another about what's going on and not play the game with the mask with the people who matter most to us and so I want to leave you with a question and that is what are some of the ways other people do things that really upset you and then answer that question with do I ever do any of these behaviors and if you answer no are you sure you're not repressing denying or rationalizing or any of those other strategies we discussed and then if you do admit you're human <laughs> under what circumstances do you do those same things 
what causes those same triggers and why? And what is the difference between yourself exhibiting those behaviors versus how you perceive someone else in those moments? And how can you extend kindness and love, curiosity, openness to those parts of yourself? And on that note, I would love for you to share your thoughts and comments, feedback. Let's get this conversation going. Until next time. (laughs) Bye.